0: Having done a number of years of counseling and as I was thinking about what I wanted to come and share with you today, um, I really began to think about uh, what I saw in my experience of people coming into um, counseling and the things that were going on in their life. And one of the patterns that I found in those problems in living is a struggle with anger and an inappropriate or uh, unbiblical management of anger, an inability to recognize righteous and unrighteous anger, and really the progress of uh, circumstances and events that bring anger to the surface in us that then can become bitterness. And we're gonna talk about what that looks like and how we can battle that. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, it is purely by saving grace. It is on no work of our own. I know we all believe that. And there is another kind of grace after we become believers called enabling grace. And that is the kind of grace, that is the grace that is illustrated by Jesus saying, and I am with you always to the end of the age. As we are going about, I saw your, your um, tagline here, one race, one hope. No, one savior, one purpose. It's One Hope Church. Um, and our purpose is to glorify God and to live uh, the Christ life and He grants us enabling grace to do that. It's an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit that happens as we live out our calling to exemplify Christ to the world. Bitterness actually keeps us from living out our one purpose. And so we would do well to protect ourselves from bitterness. And the reason this is, I think, uh, crucial for all of us is we live in a fallen world. And so circumstances and events and people around us are going to do hurtful things. Circumstances are going to be difficult and, and painful and hurtful. And so we have to know how are we going to engage those circumstances in our lives in a biblical, in a biblical way. To start with this morning, I want to just story tell uh, about um, Two different experiences of bitterness um, in in the scriptures. So the first one comes from uh, 1 Samuel. Starts in 1 Samuel 15. It's 1 Samuel 15 through 18. I'm just gonna story tell for you really quickly to get there. Saul was made king over Israel. And Samuel was the prophet. Um, He was the judge at the time. And uh, Saul was to never... uh, do any kind of uh, priestly sacrifice in his role as king that belonged, separated, there was a separation of responsibility and powers, and that belonged to Samuel alone. Well, Saul was on the battlefield waiting for Samuel and believed that Samuel was too long in coming. He was waiting on Samuel to show up for the blessing of God to be with the prophet so they would be successful in their battle. And so Saul decided to go ahead and to um, do the sacrifice and the ritual before going into battle. Samuel found out about it. Um, It was a complete disobedience to God's command, and Samuel let Saul know that the kingdom would be ripped from him. Probably remember that story a little bit. After that, David is um, identified as the next up-and-coming anointed of God, and then he battles Goliath. We all know the story of uh, uh, David and Goliath. And after battling Goliath... The scripture says this in 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, as they were coming home, this is after David had returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and thus saying, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And you know the story, Saul goes on to try to kill David because of his jealousy and his fear that David would be taking the kingdom from him. So we have this event where there's clear sin that Saul committed and God's judgment is on Saul and his blessing is on David. It is clear that God is doing something new and he's rescued Israel from the Philistines through David and then the people are celebrating, the women in particular, celebrating uh, David's battle strength, his strength in battle. And Saul grows angry and jealous and bitterness takes root in his heart. And we see, if you read the story of Saul, his life ends uh, terribly. He began strong. He began well, even blessed with the Spirit and prophesying the Spirit coming upon him. And the end of his life was a travesty because of the bitterness that had taken root. There's a story of another king, David, and you can find this in 2 Samuel um, 16. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Samuel 16. And what's happened is David's son, Absalom, Absalom is trying to take the kingdom from David, and he is actually succeeding and he is routing David and his supporters from, the, from Jerusalem. And on his way out, David is fleeing Jerusalem. And we pick this up, 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. When King David came into Bararim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. The son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you? you sons of Zariah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more? Now may this Benjamite, leave him alone. Let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So here we have David who is uh, truly being wronged by his son Absalom and he is fleeing out of the city and Shimei is cursing him. And attributing Saul's failure and Saul's removal as king to David and saying that David is the sinner deserving of God's judgment. And how does David respond? He, we know the mighty men of uh, valor that surrounded David. They could have done exactly what they said. Shimei didn't stand a chance. And David said, let him alone. For who knows what God has in mind and maybe I am being chastised by the Lord. Let's wait and see. I trust in God's graciousness to me either way. There's another story. Uh, You know the story of Joseph. When he was young, he had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. And he told his brothers, it was a big mistake. He told his brothers, you're all gonna bow down to me. And they got really angry. He was the favored son. He's the one that had uh, the multicolored coat from his father. It was more than just a piece of clothing, it was a symbol of uh, status in the family and favoredness. In Genesis 37, 4, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and they were not able to speak to him kindly. Genesis 37, 8, then his brothers asked him, do you really think that you will rule over us and have dominion over us? And they hated him even more because of his dream and because of what he said. And you likely know how the story goes. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown into prison, and he languished in prison for 20 years. Now, we miss that sometimes. We read it because it happens in a couple of chapters. But he was in prison for 20 years. Now, think about things that you've endured for any length of time. And it gives us a picture of how long he was enduring this reality this circumstance and then by a miraculous gift of God he was released from prison 20 years later to interpret Pharaoh's dream and when he does so he ends up being put in a high position just under Pharaoh and he ends up rescuing the entire land because of God's providence and his being with Joseph giving him a plan to escape the famine and then he meets his brothers once again in this incredible drama, and they realize his identity and they are instantly fearful of reprisal. You can read all of that in Genesis 37 and forward. How does Joseph respond? In Genesis 50, starting in verse 15 through 21, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge? and wants to repay us in full for all the harm that we did him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, listen to what they said. Your father gave these instructions before he died. Tell Joseph this, please forgive the sin of your brothers and the wrong that they did when they treated you so badly. Now this is after Israel or Jacob has passed away. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When this message was reported to him, Joseph wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before him, and they said, here we are, we are your slaves. But Joseph answered them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant harm to me. But God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see this day. Joseph's brothers were angered and embittered by a perceived hurt and offense, I mean, who gave Joseph the dream? It was something that God was doing. Believing they deserved better than they were receiving, they went about to punish Joseph and remove him. But Joseph's response to actual evil done to him was surprising and it was supernatural. It was in God's hands all the time. Listen to what Joseph says to them. He says, though you intended it for evil, God was using it for good so that he might rescue an entire nation, multiple nations, from famine. There's something in those two stories, the story of two kings, Saul and David, and their different responses to perceived hurt and actual hurt, And the response of Joseph's brothers to their perceived hurt and Joseph's actual hurt. There's completely different experiences. Saul and Joseph's brothers become bitter and it leads them into a myriad of sins. But David and Joseph, they actually grow from this experience. Because of their trust in what God is doing, they become better. And that same opportunity is given to us in every experience, every painful experience. Every time someone wrongs us, we have the opportunity to grow bitter or we can grow better. And it all comes down to how we view God and his sovereignty, his providence in our lives. So what is bitterness? Bitterness bitterness is a resentful and unforgiving Bitterness is a resentful and unforgiving attitude towards another person. This attitude most often creeps in by degree and therefore it goes completely unrecognized by the individual who is growing bitter. I'm going to say that again. Bitterness creeps in by degree. And therefore, it often goes unrecognized by the person who is actually growing bitter. It's more than simply being hurt, frustrated, or angry. Bitterness is an attitude. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking about and seeing the world that becomes life-defining. When we experience a hurt and rehearse it over and over again in our minds, rather than forgiving the hurt, we are in danger of growing bitter, Bitterness is a stance where the person who is embittered requires restitution from the offender before the offender is released. There's a kind of debt that must be paid to the bitter person. Here's the really interesting thing. That bitter person will hold that debt over someone or multiple someone's heads until restitution is made and even beyond. Have you ever met somebody that when you have actually sought their forgiveness, you have recognized you've sinned against them or they have grown bitter, and then you seek to change the relationship or to heal the relationship, have you ever noticed how hard it is for that person to let go of their bitterness? And they'll say things like forgiveness is a process, which is not true, Walking in forgiveness is a process. Granting it is a moment in time. But have you ever noticed how the bitter person has a hard time letting go? It's because that bitterness is serving as a empowering. It makes them feel powerful and like they're in control, I think. But really what's happening is they're in bondage. And they're the ones being controlled. And the reason that a bitter person cannot let go of their bitterness when they've been asked for forgiveness is because they've not repented of their own sin that's driving the bitterness. It's about the sin of the individual who's bitter now, not the sin that was committed against them. Bitterness causes pain and inflexibility in relationship and it causes bondage. The hurt that we've experienced becomes not just a hard experience at that time, but it becomes a defining experience. Some people believe that bitterness is to blame for even illnesses, cancers, and different illnesses. I think that makes sense personally because we are integrated mind, body, and spirit. I think it does affect our physical well-being, but the primary reason that we should avoid bitterness is not because it has an effect on our health. The primary reason we should avoid an unforgiving attitude and bitterness is because bitterness is offensive to God. You know, often Jesus will help his disciples understand what the kingdom of God is like by comparing it to something or telling a story. The following is a story that Jesus tells in response to a disciple's question about the kind of forgiveness required In the kingdom of God. If you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now Peter is picking the highest number he can imagine to forgive somebody over and over again. It's the number of completion. Look, seven times and I'm out. Right? Right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. How much is that? 490? Do you think he intends for us to count to 490? Could you keep up with what number you're on? Maybe you can. If you can, maybe you've got a problem with bitterness. But could you even keep up with it? I couldn't keep up with it. I lose track, right? It's unlimited forgiveness. 490 times? For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, you all know how much a talent is, right? I didn't either. I had to look it up. A talent would be equal, one talent, a silver talent, would be equal to about 20 years' salary for a laborer the person in the story. A laborer would take 20 years to make a talent worth, and gold, if Jesus was talking about a talent of gold, it's 30 times that number. All right now, 10,000 talents times 20 years. 200,000 years of debt. I, I believe, I believe Jesus is using this purposely for effect to his point. This slave owes 10,000 talents. And look what he says. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. How? There is no way, there is absolutely no way to pay this debt. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion because he recognizes this. And he released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. Now, one denarii is worth about um, a day, of, of salary for a worker. So about 100 days, some people believe maybe a year. So 100 days to a year, I'd, I'm not positive about that, but that's what he's owed, 100 denari. 200,000 years of debt, 100 days of debt. And this slave seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Could he have? Would it have been hard? Would it have taken a long time? Yeah, but he could have repaid him. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord, to their Lord, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now this is a parable. It's a story. This isn't a historical account, but it's given for an effect. 10,000 talents, the slave was forgiven 200,000 years worth of debt. There's no way he could have ever repaid it. The other slave would have only been forgiven 100 denarii's worth of debt or 100 days worth of, of debt. Jesus is making a very clear point to his disciples. How much forgiveness should we offer? When you outpace God's forgiveness of you, let me know. Because we have been forgiven far more against a holy God than we will ever have to forgive anybody else in our lives and I understand I understand that this world is filled with pain and difficulty real pain think about your own salary just really quickly a hundred days worth or one year just go for one year salary if somebody owed you one year's salary is that insignificant is it insignificant isn't that a significant amount of money That's a lot of money. So we're not playing games and saying that the sins against us are not real and painful and costly. We're just being called to compare it to forgiveness that's been granted to us by a holy God and the sin that we've already been forgiven. When you forgive someone, it is going to cost you it may cost you dearly. And the only way that you and I are gonna be able to navigate that forgiveness biblically is to keep in mind the kind of forgiveness that reflects the kingdom of God. That we will never outpace God's forgiveness of us. My heavenly Father will also do to you the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice Instead, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgive, has forgiven you. Bitterness is offensive to God because you and I have been forgiven far more than any of us could ever repay. And recognizing that forgiveness will lead to graciousness to others. Another reason that we should avoid bitterness is not just that it's offensive to God, but it also defiles the body of Christ. In Hebrews twelve, fourteen through 15, Scripture says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, many become defiled. You see, bitterness sets us against others, in particular in the body of Christ. I mean, this happens in church bodies as much as it happens in the world outside. When I'm bitter, my glory, and not the glory of God, has become my primary focus. My primary focus is what I want or what I deserve I'm no longer thinking about what God is doing what is God in his providence what is God in his love doing in my life and in the world around me and when I'm bitter I can no longer live a life of gratitude and grace now when I'm bitter I firmly believe that I deserve better I deserve more And I've lost sight of God's abundant provision and goodness, and His faithful presence in my life. I've lost sight of the gospel—the gospel that we are meant to not only be saved by, but to live by. I've lost sight of the body of Christ, and my ability to then work effectively in the body has been severely damaged, if not completely removed. Now, rather than living my life for the glory of God and for his purposes, I'm living for self and I'm only focused on my own hurt. You know, like weeds in your flower bed, I don't know if you have weeds at your house, we have a ton. Bitterness seems to spring up as if an unforgiving and resentful attitude has just appeared out of nowhere. Like it appears that my weed, suddenly I went, walked into my house yesterday and I was like, oh, this is bad. Out of nowhere, where'd they come from? And maybe one day we do wake up and find that our garden is overrun with weeds. But would it be right to say that there were no weeds and then suddenly the garden was overrun by them? Of course not. They've been growing there all along and without taking action, they've been allowed to grow unhindered. And bitterness is more like a seed that's sowed and covered and watered and fertilized and grows over a series of actions rather than something that just pops up overnight. I had a counselee one time, and he said, I don't understand it. He said, I'll be in a relationship with someone, I'll be talking, and then I just explode. I just have an explosive anger problem. And I said, well, That may be how you're experiencing. The reality is, is you are basically stacking up wood, all the thoughts that you're having, all those things that you're not admitting, but you're having these thoughts about the individual that you're upset with. You're just throwing wood on a big pile. And then a spark comes. You're filling it, you know, uh, pouring gasoline on it. Weeks. And then suddenly a spark comes. Something happens, and it triggers you and then up in flames and suddenly you're enraged and angry. That does not happen. It feels immediate, but it happens over a series of thoughtful or thoughtless uh, behavior. Bitterness is more like a seed that is sowed and covered and watered and fertilized in our lives. Bitterness is cultivated from my responses to actual or perceived hurt. Like I said, it doesn't just appear one day. Though you're aware of it, immediately, suddenly, it's been growing. Bitterness is always a result of how I think about God and how I think about myself and how I think about myself in difficult circumstances or pain. And this is the thing. It could be either an actual sin against us or it can simply be a perceived offense when I just don't get what I want. And we need to understand, first and foremost, if this offense is truly a sin against God or if it's just simply a preference that I have. It's just something I wanted but I didn't get, and knowing this will help us determine our next steps in killing that weed of bitterness. Here's how this works. A seed is sowed, Desires are not met or there's some offense that occurs and a little seed is planted, a little seed is planted in my mind or my heart. And then that seed is buried over, it's covered in dirt with a thought, she doesn't care about how important this is to me or he doesn't care about how important this is to me. Feelings of hurt and anger sprout. And then that seed is fertilized. The thought is, he is so selfish or he always, or she never, and then feelings of hurt and anger grow, and then the seed is watered with a thinking, she can't do this to me, I won't allow it, or I'll give him a taste of his own medicine. There's these moments in our thinking that drive the anger. And the law of the farmer, you find that in Galatians 6, the law of the farmer says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh destruction. Destruction. And if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit fruitfulness. It's a matter of what you're sowing in the soil of your own heart. And the result of this cultivation of bitterness is that I become defined by my pain or my offense and by bitterness. These little offenses grow and then develop into an attitude that I apply across the board. All women want is, or every man only cares about, or all those church people. There's a lot of church hurt in our world. All those church people, X, Y, Z. And if allowed to just stay, these little and big hurts, they grow into a way of looking at relationships in the world. And then bitterness just grows like a weed and chokes out, chokes out the life of the spirit. Bitterness is always a result of a choice. It doesn't just happen. In every hurtful situation, we have an opportunity to become bitter, or to grow better from it. It depends on your view of God and your trust in his sovereignty. Back to David and Joseph. What was it about David that caused him to respond to a situation with trust in God? What had he experienced in his life before that time? His own sin and forgiveness. And his trust in God's faithfulness and his presence in his life. What about Joseph? What was his process? For Joseph, the hits just kept coming. And then in prison for 20 years, the scripture doesn't indicate that Joseph struggled with trusting God. He must have had low points and difficulty, but it does tell us that he wanted out of his hard situation. He didn't relish being in prison, but it seems that even in his pain, Joseph didn't grow bitter and he continued to be fruitful. What would it be like for you? In those moments of pain and difficulty, those moments of trial, those circumstances that are painful, or more importantly, those times where people are offensive to you, what would happen if you trusted God, that he is at work and he is always good in that moment? How can we become better? How do we experience these these hurtful things and grow from them? well, I think it's important to recognize the symptoms of bitterness. Remember I said that it's difficult for the bitter person to recognize their bitterness? It grows by degree. And so we can look for some evidence of being bitter. One such thing would be difficulty resolving conflict. When there's difficulty uh, resolving conflict, I've never been in a counseling situation with a couple where they could not uh, resolve conflict, that it wasn't because one or both of them were embittered and unwilling to forgive. Unwilling to live out that reality of total depravity and the reality that we are sinners in need of grace. And so because they could not ever seem to get beyond that conflict, it would lead me and hopefully them to begin to investigate their own hearts. Where are they holding on to bitterness? Acts of revenge. It might be both um, either aggressive and or passive aggressive uh, verbal attacks or outbursts of anger, even with relatively uh, small offenses. Withdrawal. Have you ever given somebody the silent treatment, the cold shoulder? I'll show them. I won't talk to them. And they have no idea what's going on. They're supposed to know. That is a sign of bitterness. How about hypersensitivity? You know, we live, I'm even afraid to say it out loud, we live in a supremely hypersensitive world. It's as if people are looking for a reason to be offended. Does it feel that way to you? It's constant. That may be a sign that there's a bitterness, there's a bitter root that needs to be dug up. How about suspicion or distrust? Are you, you know, relationships that are marked by suspicion and distrust, they often are, are not simply trust of the offender, but also of everyone else. As I said before, you know, all men are unfaithful, or all women only care about, or all church people. Now listen, trust, I gotta say really quickly, trust is not equal to love or forgiveness. In some instances, it's wise not to trust certain people. But I'm speaking of distrust of all people, that it's a it's a stance, it's an attitude, it's a position that you hold because of the hurt that you've experienced? Or how about remembering or rehearsing the details of an offense, either with someone or in your own mind? I do not like this about myself, but I am a mutterer. Some of you are old enough to know who Yosemite Sam is. Some of you all know who Yosemite Sam and You'd hear him, it was the cartoon version of cursing. And he would, and he'd mutter. That's me. When I'm hurt or upset, I'll go for a walk, I'll work away, I'll separate myself, and then I'll just mutter. I'll have an argument in my mind with the person, and I always win. Right? It, didn't it feel that way? Like, this is what I would say. This is what I'll say next time. And we build our own self-righteousness rather than confessing our sin. And It's one of those things in my own life that I have to recognize immediately when I'm muttering, when I'm complaining, that bitterness might be taking root. And I need to confess. The response is to confess my own sin. Distinguishing, it's important not only to recognize the symptoms, but to distinguish between righteous and unrighteous anger. <clears throat> All bitterness is a is a result of mishandling anger, not handling anger biblically. Anger comes from a negative evaluation or judgment of a circumstance or an offense. A, a circumstance or an offense. Anger is a negative evaluation or judgment. So righteous anger, righteous anger comes from a righteous evaluation and will result in a righteous response. Unrighteous anger comes from an unrighteous evaluation, an unright evaluation and not true and will typically result in unrighteous or sinful responses I've had people ask me, "How anger is confusing because we all experience it and we've heard that not all anger is evil. And in fact, the scripture says that God becomes righteously angry. And Ephesians uh, 4, 25 says, be angry yet do not sin. So there is the possibility of being angry and it being righteous and not sinful. How do I know? Well, the best... Um, the best indicator in my life is that unrighteous anger will always result in sinful behavior. And for me personally, even when there is righteous anger because of my brokenness, I will often add in unrighteous anger. It's very easy for me in situations to no longer be concerned about the glory of God or the person that has caused uh, an event or has made me angry, caused me to be angry. It's very quick to begin to be worried, more worried about my own glory, my own comfort, my own idolatry. And for me, it's usually mixed. But righteous anger should lead to righteous responses. Prayer discussion prayer right we should be praying and asking god to intervene righteous anger should be used to solve problems and unrighteous anger needs to lead to personal confession and repentance ephesians uh, 426 through 27 Sorry. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now I think this passage is really interesting. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. When we are sinfully angry, when we are not handling our anger biblically, we are inviting the enemy into that relationship to cause havoc and to cause pain, and to cause difficulty, both in our own lives and in the lives, the relationship that we have. There's very few places in scripture where um, there's a warning against Satan being engaged or against us. There are a few. Most of the passages in scripture are about our own sinfulness and managing our own brokenness. We can be bad all by ourselves, we don't need Satan. But this is one of those warnings that we should take to heart that when we do not handle our anger biblically, we are inviting spiritual attack. So we should attack problems and your bitterness and not people. Anger should be used as a motivation and energy to solve problems in a righteous manner. So how can we do that? How can we solve uh, anger biblically? Well, we have to think correctly. We have to think righteously. Number one, we should pray for God's help to use scripture and to think wisely about the situation. There's a scripture in Matthew 7 that says, take the log out of your own eye before you reach for the speck in somebody else's. The wisdom there is that we should be praying and asking the Lord, what part of this do I own? What part of this difficulty, what miscommunication, what part of this do I own? What is the log in my own eye? It doesn't say, check your eye and see if there's a log there. It assumes it's there. And it's assuming, by the, by the example, that your sin should feel much bigger and like much, a much bigger problem than the speck in the other person's eye that you're reaching for. We should pray and ask for God's help. And then, we should look for God in the trial. What is God doing? Where can we experience his grace? A bad thing, a difficult thing, truly may be intended by a person for our harm. But looking for God in the trial is where is he Where is he giving grace? Where is he strengthening you? It's meant to evoke a heart of gratitude and a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. God, where are you at work in this? And then, make room for God to act. So often, we act impulsively, or we act out of revenge, and we're not leaving room for God to act. Romans 12 says that we should never take uh, vengeance, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Instead, we should seek to be at peace with all men as much as depends upon us, and we leave the rest to God. So look at those those first three things. There's no There's no physical movement or action. There's only thought actions to pray, to think about God's graciousness and His where is he in this trial, and to make room for God to pray and then wait and see what God might do. And only then do we begin to act righteously. We specifically are commanded in in Romans 12 again to return good for the evil done to us. So I don't understand it. That is, that is supernatural. That is not something that I am driven to do except by the spirit of God and by obedience to his word. To look specifically of how I can do good for the one or to the one who has been offensive. And then, look at that, number five. Only then... Humbly communicate to solve the problem. When you have sufficiently worked through one through four, then you are in a mental position to lovingly, if possible, it's not always possible, to communicate to solve the problem. And after you've communicated to solve that problem, then you act to solve your part of the problem. You commit to the Lord that I'm going to do what you are commanding me to do, Lord, and I'm going to trust the rest to you. I believe strongly that the way we handle anger can have a great deal to do with our experience of joy and life that God intends for us to have in this world. And you will, you will be angry. You will experience hurt and offense. It is going to happen. So determining ahead of time, what will I do? How can I be more like David and Joseph and less like Saul or Joseph's brothers in this moment? Lord, help me to trust that you are active, you are in this, and you are good. I can't see it right now. Remember, Joseph, 20 years in prison But I know, God, that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I trust you and I'm waiting on you. Can I pray for us?